Do you need a break? You read my mind. Come with me. Hello and welcome back to another episode of my podcast, The Break. I am your host, Father Roderick. I'm a priest and I'm a geek and I love to share with you my passion for movies, video games, TV shows, and everything story related. So I hope you enjoy the show. We have a ton of topics to address. Sit back, relax, and let's go! And first of all, I want to give you my spoiler-free review of the first new Doctor Who in ages, at least for me, because I have not been able to catch up with uh, Doctor Who for two years now, three years, because I was watching Doctor Who on Prime Video. They had the rights to the Doctor Who series, but in the middle of the Capaldi seasons, I think even before... Well, no, actually, they went all the way to season 10, and then it stopped. There, there was no Doctor Who anywhere in the Netherlands. And it wasn't even available on DVD or maybe on iTunes. I don't know, but I don't like to pay so much money just to, to watch a, a TV episode. None of the streaming platforms uh, were showing um, Doctor Who. I completely missed the, 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 what is it, two or three seasons with Jodie Whittaker. Um, uh, I was very curious to see that incarnation of, the, uh, of, of Doctor Who as a female doctor. We know that doctors, time lords, can, um, can either appear as female or, or male. They established that before. But this is the first time that we actually had a female doctor in the TV show. Um, but I completely missed out on, on those seasons. It's still not available anywhere, which baffles me. But there was great news a while ago that Disney would, would uh, take over, well, not really take over the franchise, but they would have a stake in the, in the production. They wanted to have the rights to distribute outside of the UK, because I think if you're in the UK, you still have to watch it on the Beeb. But anywhere else in the world, Disney has the rights to it. What I was hoping for was that Disney would also unlock the entire back catalog. There are, I think, about 800 Doctor Who episodes available. You could watch them if you live in the UK and you have access to the iPlayer, but most of the world has no access to the iPlayer, and there is no way to actually view those um, those episodes. I think there are some YouTube channels that maybe kind of are in the gray circuit. They show um, some of those episodes. There is also, I think, a platform that shows the episodes with a lot of ads in it. But if you want to have the full um, experience, you need to be a UK resident. Um, so unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, in, after I'm done reviewing the first episode of the of the new Doctor Who, I will um, maybe explore some of the reasons that uh, that Disney won't have access to the back catalog. Has to do with money, of course. Um, but let's first look at the trailer for um, this first episode. So it's um, it, it is a, a series a, s- a series of specials, um, and it is at the occasion of the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, So it's quite incredible that this show has been running for 60 years. I grew up with Doctor Who. It's a totally different type of Doctor Who with Tom Baker as a doctor. Um, And it was... I was watching it on a 4x3 television. But nowadays, uh, the series still uses the same ingredients as it has done from the beginning. And I was super excited to see in this new special... um, that a lot of what made Doctor Who so relevant um, ever since its inception, uh, that those elements are still in place. So let's take a look at the trailer. After a very long time. Something's coming back. What do we do this time, Doctor? How do we fight the human race? I had to wipe her memory to save her life. Like if she remembers me, she will die. Something entered this world. She is recognizing me. Who is he? The one who waits. I don't know if I can save your life this time. Doctor Who original series 
And then we get a glimpse of the next doctor because the doctor that we see in uh, this these, these specials is not a new doctor. So every time there is an, a new incarnation of the doctor, the doctor wakes up in a different body. Um, but what was very interesting at the at the final season of the let's say the Jodie Whittaker series, which I haven't seen but I heard about it, was that the 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 new doctor actually had the face of the tenth doctor played by David Tennant, who was in fact my favorite doctor, uh, especially of the of the newer Doctor Who series that started with uh, Eccleston as the doctor and then it moved to David Tennant and then we had some other actors, but. I don't know. There's something about David Tennant. It's probably also because um, not only is he, is he a great actor, but he's he's also a really great guy. Um, he's got a podcast. If you've never listened to it, check it out. He's a really, really um, nice guy. Very interesting. Very entertaining. Very passionate about everything. So definitely uh, check that out. Um, and and so I was I was elated to see that, that David Tennant was back as the Doctor, although there is no explanation yet why. Uh, all of a sudden, this new incarnation reverted to to the the face of the of, of uh, David Tennant's doctor. Um, the story itself is very much in line with everything that the show has been building up for the last ten years. See a lot of of um, known foes, and we get glimpses of uh, and 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 lots of nods and references to previous uh, series uh, or seasons. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is also the return of uh, of Donna uh, of Catherine, Catherine Tate, who plays uh, Donna, the the companion of the Doctor of David Tennant's Doctor, um, and it's I don't think she's been on TV in at least in for Doctor Who for for at least ten years or maybe even more, maybe fifteen years, um, and it's really wonderful to catch up on her. History on the well, the history of her character. So she's now married. She, um, I think we saw that wedding in one of her final appearances. Um, but then her memory got wiped. This is told in the trailer, so it's not not really a spoiler. So she doesn't remember the doctor. And so when when David Tennant's doctor shows up in her life, she has no idea who that is. She she doesn't know anything about the doctor. The thing is, the people around her know that she should they have seen the doctor they know about the tardis and they know what is at stake because if she remembers um her her past with the doctor um it her brain will basically explode she will die for for reasons it's a little bit too complicated to explain um and so there is this tension like oh she is now going to be at least temporarily uh the companion of the doctor again but will she ultimately remember him um we also see um her family life she has a daughter um and this is a a um a transgender uh, person or how do you say that so her daughter is is, is trans transgender and we see a little bit of um of the way in which her daughter struggles with discrimination, so there are kids from school that are yelling after her, etc. And at first, I, I f that felt a bit gratuitous. It felt a bit like, oh, well, that's currently the, very much the thing in every television show. There has to be um, a non-binary character or a transgender character. And this is part of, of course, the way in which our culture is adapting to all the changes and new attention for groups that are, you know, previously weren't, um, uh, well, didn't have the, the same kind of exposure on television, uh, or even were, were seen in a very negative light. So we've, we've seen this, and this is a, a global thing, well, not a global thing, but in certain uh, areas of the world, especially in our Western countries, you see a lot of kind of catching up with certain marginalized groups to have to be represented, and I have to say that I have nothing against that. In fact, this is the function of storytelling; it is to show as a mirror of our society. And if changes occur, this is why, especially shows like science fiction shows and shows like like Doctor Who, um, often you know find inspiration for for new storylines. That if you look a little bit further you clearly recognize as metaphors of, of things that we are dealing with as a society. 
And Doctor Who has done this from right from the start. But, as I said, it felt a little bit contrived here. It's like, oh, this is just probably just on the checklist. We need to have transgender character. What I really appreciated about the way they told this particular story is that they actually make it part of the plot. There is something that happens towards the end that uh, ties into what happened to Donna when she when her memory was wiped, etc. It, it was a little bit kind of strange, but at least I, I appreciated the effort to to make it to integrate it more into the overall story that th- this episode or these episodes is trying to tell. Um, so um, showrunner Russell T. Davies um, was asked about the this this transgender uh, character um, because, as you can imagine, not everybody is happy with this, and there are lots of people that are like, "Oh, it's the woke culture again," or maybe it's the influence of Disney, um, but. I have to say that that wouldn't that doesn't do justice to what Doctor Who has always done, um, because for for decades Doctor Who has introduced um, characters that were seen as marginalized or you know has talked about a lot of topical stuff like like uh, genocide and discrimination and homophobia etc. All those things that are that are um, part of our modern day society and that people struggle with or you know are trying to figure out how to how do we deal with all these different elements in our society and in our changing culture um doctor who has always put that in the forefront in that respect doctor who as an english show is is rather similar to star trek as an american production star trek has a similar goal of telling science fiction stories so fictional stories that are almost always kind of reflecting something that is going on in the modern day society and also uh, showing kind of the, the 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 different sides to that and the the, the conflict and the tension that that sometimes um uh, evokes or 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 uh, or, or um, uh, causes so when uh Russell Davies was was asked about uh this uh, particular character and why he told the story the way he did he said um that one of his goals was to educate the audience when it comes to respect for transgender people. So this is still an issue, and this is true also in in my own country, in the Netherlands. Um, even though in the media there's a, there's a, a lot of representation and there's much more attention to this particular category of people than than I remember from you know most of my life. However, in in reality, in on the street, in in the cities, in the towns, there is still a lot of um, of animosity towards the whole the whole topic. You know, people are very allergic to talking about this, and um, people that transgender people have to deal with a lot of um, of of hatred and discrimination, and um, that causes a lot of pain, as you can imagine. So, so the what they tried to do with this particular episode was to give a little bit of insight into um, the how difficult it is uh, for a transgender kid to to grow up in a world that you know rejects them. Um, so think of that what you want, but my the point that I'm trying to make is this is what stories do. This is the, the stories are a reflection of what's going on in our lives. If that wouldn't be the case if we just step into a totally fictional world. There's nothing wrong with escapism, but those stories b- tend to become much less relevant. One of the one of the reasons I think that both Star War, Star Trek, and um, and Doctor Who still find new audiences, and this is now you know spans multiple generations, is because they do this. Is because they they follow the cultural developments and then mirror that in the way they tell stories so in my opinion this is going to be a phase or like 10 20 years from now we're going to look back on this period of time and we'll see we'll re-watch those movies and television series and we'll we'll say to each other well oh yeah remember that time yeah there was so much like emphasis on transgender lg lgtb lgtb it's like the letters are different in the in dutch in the dutch abbreviation lgtb Q plus, um, so there's there's so much uh, attention to that particular 
uh, category of, of people. Um, and at the time, that was part of an emancipatory uh, phase. And, well, society is now in a different in a different situation or maybe all the te- television shows will be about totally something totally different maybe it will all be about uh how to live in um in a in a world that is now like 10 degrees warmer than it ever has been in in the past so i don't know um it's but it's interesting it's interesting to see um and i have to say it's as I said, it is part of the story, but it's not the main topic, of course. This is still feel, feels very much like a classic Doctor Who uh, adventure. And David Tennant has, I think, an incredible gift to radiate joy and excitement. There's, there's something very uh, childlike about him. And that comes in full display when he steps into the TARDIS and the interior of the TARDIS has completely changed. Now, this is apparently a thing. The TARDIS is not just a machine, it's a living entity. And this is why after each reincarnation of the Doctor, the interior of the TARDIS becomes totally different. And it reflects something of the past, it reflects something of the personality of of that particular Doctor. And, And so there was a scene towards the end I won't spoil it, but where David Tennant's doctor is discovering the new interior and he gets so excited and he's running around. And apparently this was this was the actor. This was David Tennant himself who said, I should be running around here. I should be all excited and not take this for granted because it is absolutely amazing, this set. It is probably twice as big as any interior of the TARDIS that they ever created. And this is how you can tell that there is some Disney money involved because there's clearly uh, an uptick in in production quality and definitely in the sets. However, I was very glad to see that it still retains its quirky, very British sensitivity. Even a little bit too much in the sense that I was wondering if... if, uh, if I think of my American followers and people that are part of my American audience, I wonder if they if they get that very very British style and the, the type of humor, even the the language. I wonder, can you all understand the the, the like the the different almost dialects that are spoken there, or do you use closed captions or I don't know um, I can imagine that that it's not obvious for everyone uh, because it, it, it's still such a quintessential British series we're in the Netherlands a little bit more familiar because we've been watching a lot of BBC here and um, most of what we were watching as kids even on TV um, if it was English it was not from the United States it was from from England it was from the BBC so um, and I don't know there's a certain European sense sensibility I think that that um, uh, is maybe easier to understand if you if you live in this part of the world. I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, what you thought about Doctor Who, and as always, you can tell me in the comments. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This galaxy far, far away has been prepping for the next year and it looks as if 2024 is going to be a fantastic year for Star Wars fans. Why? Because we get no less than five new Star Wars themed television series. This is crazy because uh, Bob Iger, who is currently in the process of trying to fix all the problems that are plaguing um, the, the corporate side of Disney. They're, they're losing a lot of money. Disney Plus is not it's not generating money. It's just costing them too much. He's been announcing that one of the ways in which he tries to turn the tide is by, by slowing down the production. And especially of their tentpole franchises, Marvel and Star Wars, he has said that, well, maybe we've been doing too much. And I, I believe that's Every, every Marvel and Star Wars fan can, can, can probably agree with that. We, the market has been oversaturated. Now, as a Star Wars fan, I don't mind. <laughs> the more Star Wars, the merrier. But as a casual Marvel fan, I've definitely felt the superhero fatigue and also the inability to catch up with everything. It feels like more and more, um, whenever I watch a new show, a Marvel show, I have to do so much homework. 
I was afraid that with Doctor Who it would be the same, that I would have to go and rewatch all these episodes. And I don't even remember even the seasons that, I, that I've seen. Um, and with Star Wars, you have a similar problem. Um, when Ahsoka premiered, one of my issues was that um, uh, even though I had watched Star Wars Rebels, it still felt like, uh, and, and I knew that Ahsoka was in production, so I made myself watch Star Wars Rebels. But it felt like homework. I'm glad that I did because that's how Ahsoka really spoke to me and I could understand why uh, the fans, the hardcore fans, were so excited about the return of, uh, at least the live-action return of a lot of their animated favorites. But I was wondering for someone who hasn't seen these these um, animated series, does it have the same impact? Does it have the same emotion when you, when you see um, uh, Hayden Christensen as... Anakin Skywalker, because he's not the Anakin Skywalker that we knew from the prequels. He's the Anakin Skywalker that the fans of the animated series of the Clone Wars remember. Um, and the relationship with between him and Ahsoka, that is what gives this, this, this encounter between him and Ahsoka the emotional weight. But if you have not seen that relationship, if the, if the television series is the first introduction to the character of Ahsoka, it must be really hard. And, and even for me, it was like, oh, man, there's, the, the series feels so rushed. There, there are not enough episodes. Uh, they skip so much. There's so much that, that, we're, that we haven't even seen in the animated series. And it, it, it's just, it's too much. You have to do too much work to understand it. Um, and who has time to, to watch The Clone Wars? If you've not seen it when it aired... Man, that takes you months to go through all these episodes. And that is if you don't watch anything else. Um, and, and so this is a big problem for, uh, for, for, for the franchise because then you know, people will start to just give up on, on Marvel or Star Wars. This is what we see happening right now with the Marvels, the movie, uh, where you know, people don't... It's not that it's a bad movie. I hear from almost everyone who has seen it that it's a very entertaining, fun movie, not maybe the best that, that Marvel has done. But, you know, it's, it's really entertaining. But I, I don't feel like I have to watch it right now. I've, I've had my share of Marvel this year. I'll, I'll watch it when it's, um, when it's on Disney+. Plus, but I will take my time. And that, of course, is a, is a big problem. Despite all that... There, we know that we are going to get these five television series um, of Star Wars, and, and maybe then, after that, things will start to slow down. It's also possible that some of these five television series will be pushed back, in, back towards 2025, because, of course, we'll still have to wait yet another year until we see the first theatrical release. So that's going to be 2026. Um, so they had better also have something in store for the Star Wars fans in 2025. But on the other hand, all these productions are now completed. It's, it's, it, they're just there, so you can't wait two years before you start promoting it. That, that is also a waste of energy and resources. So what are these shows? First of all, Star Wars Skeleton Crew. This is set in the same time frame as The Mandalorian and Ahsoka, and it focuses on four teenagers that are trying to find their way home. They're lost in space. <laughs> I don't know if it's an homage, but it's definitely the same idea. Um, one of the major stars is Jude Law, um, and he's probably going to lead the kids to back home, or, well, on their journey. It, it f finished filming um, early this year, so it's been in post-production for almost a year now. Um, so I have no doubt that that will be released next year. Then we have a second show that I'm personally the most excited about because it will finally show us a totally different time era of the Star Wars galaxy. And that is um, The Acolyte, Star Wars The Acolyte. Um, it, um, it features um, two main actors, uh, Amanda Stenberg, and then we've got Lee Jung-jae, who is the, um, North, uh, the South Korean actor who uh, has the, the main role in Squid Game. Um, and uh, this whole series talks more, of, it's more of like a detective type of story, um, where a 
Padawan uh, rejoins her 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 master um, to solve some crimes. It's, it's going to be a lot about the Star Wars underworld, but it takes place in the High Republic era of Star Wars, which of course now has a ton of books and comics um, that cover that era. But we've never seen anything be- visual beyond the comics. So I think it's very exciting that we finally get some live action. I th- I still feel that they should have done this from the get-go. They should have started this whole High Republic um, uh, part of the franchise with a movie. That would have been such a great introduction. It would have made it so much easier to step into this totally different world. Star- it's still Star Wars, but it's, a, it's such an unknown territory for most Star Wars fans. Um, but anyway... We'll take what we get, so the Acolyte, um, definitely also um, something to look forward to. Then we have the final season of what has now become very quickly one of my favorite animated shows that um, uh, uh, Lucasfilm has ever produced, and that is The Bad Batch. It was a spin-off of The Clone Wars, but it's so charming and so funny, it, it, it really works. It's It's got a good... Um, underlying mythology and and i'm i still haven't been able to figure out what exactly is going to be the 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 big you know conclusion of all this but you can feel that there is a lot that they haven't told us um it's it's a really good series so that will um uh, that will end uh in 2024 and then we'll also see tales of the jedi season two this was an anthology of very short animated show um, animated stories um, this is all created by Dave Filoni. Um, he he told us um, back in April at the Star Wars convention that um, when he's commuting, these are the stories that he came up with. Like he's sitting in a car, he's going home to his family, and then and then all of a sudden he thinks, oh wait, I could tell this or this little event in this in the life of the characters that people are already familiar with. It's not enough for a television show. It's not enough for, definitely not enough for a movie. It's it's just not it's not big enough for a book, but it would work very well as a an animated short. And the first, the first anthology, I thought, was excellent. It was really well done. So I can't wait to see what he's going to do with uh, season two. And then, of course, the biggest show... In my in my opinion, the best Star Wars that we've ever had is Andor, and we are going to see season two. Uh, the filming of Andor has been delayed because of the strikes. First, the writer strike, but most of the scripts had already been finalized. Uh, but then the actor strike, of course, definitely halted production. Um, so this may be the only series that they could potentially push back to 2025. I, I hope they don't, because I so love Andor, and it's I'm so so intrigued by how they're going to tell the rest of the story. Um, and in a certain way, I want them to finish the second season of Andor, so that the, everyone who was involved in Andor can then start another project in the same vein. I want more stuff like Andor. I want these writers, Tony Gilroy and and all the others, um, I want them involved in Star Wars for the long run. I feel it's such a nice counterbalance to what Dave Filoni does. It's a totally different type type of storytelling. Um, It may not have that same big mythological... um, under... How do you say that? Underpinning? But in terms of dialogue writing, character arcs, it is su- far superior to what Dave Filoni does. And and so I, I want both these things. I don't mind. I, I have a great respect for what Dave Filoni has done so far. And he brings something very special to Star Wars storytelling, which is kind of that mythological, big ideas type of story, um, very similar to what George Lucas always did. But I want Star Wars to grow up because I've grown up. And, and Andor is the direction, I think, for adult Star Wars fans. So, so let's get Andor out of the way and then please give us more of that. Please, 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 please. So I hope it's going to be a massive success. That is why 2024 is going to be such a great year for Star Wars fans. The most beloved fantasy story of all time. It is the tale of a small hobbit and the great Dick wizard who isn't. appeared to him one day. 
dude, check it out. Go like that way, and then up this one mountain, and then kill all the hippies you come across. No, no, I'm searching for a dragon's treasure. I'm the wizard, you're the dwarf, and you will respect my authority. I am no dwarf. All right, we need to talk about The Lord of the Rings again. Why do you ask? Because I've already talked about the upcoming movies, the animated movie uh, helmed by Peter Jackson. And then we've got, of course, the second season of The Rings of Power. And there appear to be other movies in the time frame of The Lord of the Rings that are now in development. So we don't know much about it but here is something that's actually just around a corner that will add a ton of lore to and official lore to a certain extent to uh the 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 what we know of middle earth and i'm not talking about a television show not about a movie i'm talking about a video game and no, it's not the Gollum game, which came out a few months ago, and it was a disaster. It was really one of the worst games um, of the year and maybe of the decade. This was just an epic, epic fail. However, it's not the only Lord of the Rings game that has been in development for the last couple of years. There is another uh, uh, game that will be launched on December the 5th. So that's next week. And what makes this game so interesting is not only that it is about the, the dwarves and the Mines of Moria. We know the Mines of Moria from The Lord of the Rings, obviously. But no, what makes this so fascinating is that it is based on what happened to Gimli and to the other dwarves and to the Mines of Moria after the events of the Lord of the Rings. You know that in the appendices, Tolkien gives us a few elements, not much, but he gives us a little bit of an indication and he also has a few in his letters, has a little bit of information about what happened in the Fourth Age uh, to Gimli. And this game that takes place in the Mines of Moria is actually about those events. Let's first listen to the trailer and take a look at it. And then I would like to um, share with you what I've been able to uncover about, about this era that is displayed in the game. Our story is more than what hobbits and elves know. It is time we told it ourselves. With hammer and axe, we cleanse the world from the shadow of the ring and its master. Yet we dwarves celebrate as a scattered people, cut off from our one true home. Across Middle-earth, we mine and sculpt, delving for riches, yet the greatest treasure remains out of our reach. Moria. Durin built it before the first sun rose, and through the ages, when darkness threatened our great kingdom, he awoke to lead us again. Until the Balrog took it all away. That was a thousand years ago. And Durin, Durin the Deathless has not returned. Some say, be patient. I say, we wait no longer. It is time to journey from every mountain. Come, rally together. Bring your axes and tools, craft and courage. It is time we dwarves return to Moria. Lord of the Rings return to Moria. And of course, you recognize that voice. It's none other than actor John Rhys Davies, who played 
Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, and he's been uh, contracted to voice Gimli again, because Gimli is one of the main characters in this game, at least the story of the game, because the game, of course, features you as one of the dwarves, but Gimli is part of the story. So when I saw this trailer, um, and I've, I've seen some early reviews of the game, I was wondering, like, how much of this is actually based on Tolkien itself? Now, I'm not a Tolkien scholar, as you know. I'm just a fan. I just love the world of Tolkien. I love Middle Earth, but I'm I don't have uh, the, the kind of knowledge that some someone like the Tolkien professor has. Um, so I can't really. Um, I, I'm not an authority here. But what I could do was just ask ChatGPT to. Give me a summary of what Tolkien wrote about the Fourth Age. This is what ChatGTP uh, told me. Of course, with the caveat that you know that that ChatGPT is based on what is available online. I used uh, the version four, and so that has ex it has access to um, online sources to the internet. But it could very well be that some of the descriptions of the game. Uh, have been used in the compilation of this knowledge. So that would create like a, a bit of a loop, right? So it is like, I want to know what Tolkien actually wrote about Fourth Age, and then it includes fictional elements and that becomes part of the narrative. So this is a big disclaimer. Don't take this with a grain of salt. Don't uh, rely on my information alone. But I found this fascinating. Let me just read uh, what, uh, what I discovered. So the game takes place in the Fourth Age after the events of The Lord of the Rings. The game, by the way, is a bit of a survival game inside the Mines of Moria. You have to fight your way uh, through all these caverns and there are lots of goblins and monsters, of course, that are trying to kill you and you have to work on, on rebuilding the Mines of Moria. So what's the background of this? Tolkien himself wrote very little about Gimli and the dwarves in the Fourth Age. Most of his writings focused on the events of the first, second, and third ages. However, he did mention some details about their fate in the appendices, as I mentioned, and also in some of his letters and unpublished notes. What are the main points? Gimli, after the Lord of the Rings, became the lord of the glittering caves of Helm's Deep. This, of course, is not Moria. Uh, th th there were caves apparently around Helm's Deep where, where you have the big battle of, uh, that we know from Lord of the Rings but um, he goes there and with his followers and makes a lot of improvements to the caverns around Helm's or under, under Helm's Deep you could say um, he also befriends the Ents of Fa uh, Fangorn Forest and he helps them to replant the trees that Saruman has cut down in order to build his war machines. Uh, he maintains his friendship with Legolas, um, and they often visit each other. Gimli also had a great desire to reclaim Moria, the ancient kingdom of his ancestors, uh, which had been overrun by orcs and a Balrog in the Third Age. Now, of course, uh, Gandalf got rid of the, of the Balrog, and this is one of the reasons that Gimli wants to go back to the mines of Moria and reclaim it. Now, this, you know, the the, the reclamation of the mines of Moria is definitely part of uh, of what Tolkien intended to happen. I'm just not sure if if Gimli uh, if if that if the, it feels like they compressed the time a little bit. So I'm not sure if, if Gimli was involved in this process. But the reclamation of the Mines of Moria and, and also it, their restoration is definitely part of, of what the, the canon writings of Tolkien. Um, so he then goes back to Moria um, and even before the War of the Ring, some of the dwarves had already tried to reclaim Moria. So it feels like to him, like this is my destiny. As a as a as a dwarf, I need to restore what is ours. He then um, gathers many dwarves from different clans and regions, which we also see in the trailer for the game, and sends out a call for them to join him in his quest to restore Moria to its former splendor. He's then joined by Durin the Seventh, the last of the line of Durin, who became the king of Khazadum. Now, this is also interesting because apparently this is a bit of a like a, a, a rebirth of Durin in, in a, one of his successors. Um, but it's, it's actually the soul or the heart of the original Durin, the original king of Khazadum. Um, I'm very curious to see how they 
tell that story in, in the game. Now, together, uh, Gimli and Durin lead a great expedition to Moria, and they face many dangers and hardships, but also discover, of course, many treasures and secrets of their ancient heritage. They clear out the orcs and all the other fall creatures that infested the mines, and they restore the halls and chambers that had been ruined by time and war. They also rekindle the friendship with the elves of Lothlorien, who lives who live just across the river Celebrant, or Celebrant, and trade with them goods and crafts. Gimli and Durin succeed in making Moria a prosperous and, and powerful realm again, and the dwarves enjoy a golden age of peace and wealth. They also reconnect with the other dwarven kingdoms of Erebor, the Iron Hills, and the Glittering Caves, and form a strong alliance among them. Gimli became a legend among his people and was revered as the greatest dwarf of his age. He lived a long and happy life, and when he was old, he sailed with Legolas to the Undying Lands, where he was the only dwarf ever to be allowed to enter. He left behind a great legacy of courage, wisdom, and friendship, and his deeds were remembered and sung by the dwarves for many generations. So the songs apparently are also part of the game. Every once in a while, the, the dwarves will get drunk and they will sing songs, which I think is very cool because if you read The Lord of the Rings, this is one of the big differences with, uh, with the movies, there are songs like in every chapter. Um, they really toned that down for the movies, but um, here in the game, um, there are lots and lots of songs. So that's pretty cool. So, um, the game itself gets mixed reviews. Some people are super, especially casual players uh, that have been able to, re to preview the game, are very excited about it. They love it. More experienced gamers are a bit disappointed because it's basically just a survival game in the world of Tolkien. And even though they appreciate the lore, they say that the, the actual survival game and the fighting is pretty mediocre. There are lots of games that do exactly the same thing, but a lot better. So... Yeah, there's something tells me that I'm going to enjoy this game. It's very grindy in a certain, in the sense that you have to dig, dig up uh, metal, precious metals and, and and gems, and then you can you can improve your gear. You you will have to clean out areas of of Moria. There is definitely progression, so there is a bit of a linear story there that you will follow. But I love survival games, and from what I gather from these early reviews, the game is not the best game to play solo because then it, it's it's such a grind you have to sometimes play you know fight orcs for 20 minutes and if it's if the if the actual game mechanics are not that good that can be very boring um but apparently if you play this in co-op and you can so if you have other players joining you in that game and you can host the game yourself then you can play together and i think that social aspect is going to make this game in my opinion a must play. I love being in Valheim, which is similar. You know, it's this survival game and you build stuff. It's probably not as good as Valheim when it comes to the, the amount of creativity that you're allowed. But I also really like to play that game with friends. So yeah, if you're if you're part of the of the uh, the Patreon community, let us know if you have that game and if you wanna if you wanna join us in uh, reconquering the Mines of Moria. Japanimation! Yeah. Cool! Um, I would like to talk about this. Attention players. You will now compete for our biggest cash prize in reality show history. You have got to be kidding me. Oh my god. 4.56 million dollars. People do a whole lot worse for a whole lot less. This is the teaser trailer for Squid Game, The Challenge, which is based on the hit series um, that was um, published by Netflix. It was bought by Netflix from a South Korean production company. And this was one of the biggest successes of 2022, I think it was last year. Um, I've been 
mesmerized. I've been hooked on that series. And it's very much a, a, like a cross between um, anime, the world of anime, and the world of video games, and maybe also a bit of The Matrix in there, um, and, and reality TV. So the show itself is... Um, a story about a number of people that are invited to join in a game where they can win this incredible amount of money, but it's going to be a, a literal game of the last man standing of all the hundreds of people that partake in this game. Um, only one person will be alive at the end, so all the other people are going to die. Um, there is also a moral conclusion to that story, which is very critical of the whole concept of the game, and there is a message that, that elevates it above just a, like a horror type of uh, series. Um, and it is very violent. Um, it, it is, there's a lot, it, it's, it's very shocking sometimes, but at the same time, riveting. It's incredibly well-produced, uh, and just the whole concept, it's like Hunger Games in Overdrive. Um, so I was very surprised to uh, to learn that Netflix was working on a reality TV uh, kind of like spin-off of, of Squid Games by turning it into a real game with real participants. And so they went out and recruited hundreds of players, locked them up in a facility, probably a big studio, and they had to compete in the same games, sometimes exactly the same ones you see in the television series, and sometimes they invented new games. Um, and it's all about the last man or woman standing. Of course, they're not going to kill off <laughs> the actual part participants. Instead, everyone who uh, participates in the games... Um, has been rigged with um, an explosive device that spreads ink over your clothes. This is actually um, very common technology in, in a lot of the more expensive fashion stores, for instance. Um, they put this on the clothes. So if you walk out without paying and you pass the detection system, the, the ink will explode, and thereby rendering the entire um, vestment or whatever or, or dress um, unusable. <clears throat> so this is um it felt a bit like a like a cash grab because we know there is going to be a second season of squid games and i'm very curious to see how they continue the story seeing how the first season ended but anyway that's for later um but also because the the <laughs> the the television series itself was very critical to what what netflix is now doing and that it's just making it real and making it really about money and, and uh, all the backstabbing. And um, so on a meta level, I'm, I'm a bit like, yeah, I'm not sure if this was the actual meaning of Squid Games. But um, the execution is fantastic. It's, it's very American, even though the participants are from all over the world. But the overall editing style, it reminded me a lot of, you know, The Biggest Loser and, and Hell's Kitchen and all these very overproduced reality shows in the United States. Um, and also the behavior of the participants is very, dare I say, American. Um, it's, it, I don't know. It, it, to me, I, I would have liked it if the series had been a little bit more diverse culturally. Um, because I'm watching it and I'm thinking, yeah, this is amazingly produced. It is it, it's very, um, I don't know, it's just it, it, addictive. I, I want to know what happens next. Um, but at the same time, in every episode, I'm like, oh my goodness, why is everybody always like yelling so much and cheering? It's oh, so, so outspoken. It's so, I don't know, it's very different from what you saw in the television series. So you, you can totally tell that it's a very American production. And, and that, that may be totally fine if you live in North America and that's just your culture. Um, but I found it a little, bit, a little bit too much, a bit too over... It's like when I go watch a movie here in European theaters, meh, people do react, but they don't laugh out loud. It's just like, huh, that was funny. Um, if you go and see the same movie in an American theater, people are like hooping and cheering and standing on their seats and it's like, yeah, yelling and there's a big applause at the end of the, of the, of the premiere. Um, there's something really 
cool about that because it's so uh, extroverted, but it's also a bit much. Anyway, that's uh, those are my I, my feelings about about Squid Game: The Challenge. the 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 series does remind it because this, of course, is the anime segment. So a little bridge um, <clears throat> towards this, uh, an anime series that I'm currently enjoying so much uh, is is uh, um, uh, based on a video game. Uh, at least on the world of video games, it's, it's the Sh- Shangri-La Frontier. I've I've mentioned it before here on the show. Um, this is a a game that takes, or no, it's an anime series that takes place inside a video game, and we are following two characters that are leveling up and they're trying to find each other. And this is all um, supposedly a, it, taking place in a VR world, and the way they portray it to me, is almost like, oh, yes, I want the Apple Vision Pro when it comes out to give me this kind of gameplay. This is what I want. It is such a great series. I, I really love it. It's fun. It's it, and it I I think if you um if you're not uh if you've never played an, an online RPG, then it may be not your up your alley, maybe not your cup of tea. But uh, for me, as someone who has been playing these games for more than a decade now, um, it, it, it this is per, for me perfect escapism. I love, love, love this series. And with that, it is time to wrap things up, at least for all my listeners that are currently not yet part of my Patreon community. As you know, I record a special, extra long version of every podcast, a premium version, if you if you will, for my patrons. And it's so simple to get access to it. You um, you go to patreon.com slash fatherodrick and sign up for the for the lowest tier. It's $2.50 per month. So that is like 40 cents a week. Um in return, you get access to a private podcast feed that you can then put into any podcast app that you use. It can be Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or, you know, all these other apps. And it will then automatically every week download the premium version of this show, which is much longer and in which I give you a little bit more insight in, you know, my life behind the scenes. We'll talk about uh, Lego, cooking, uh, technology and so much more. So um, it's, it's my way to thank my patrons because without them, I won't be able to continue my work. And I am really hoping that you, if you're not yet a patron, will become one. So if you want me to do more of this kind of content and get access to the premium feed, check it out. And we'll talk soon. God bless.